0: If you can open up your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you're new with us, we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, such a a wonderful book of the Bible, in surprising ways. Uh, Because certainly on the face of this book, it seems gloomy, and this refrain of meaningless, meaningless that the wisest man in the world had concluded about his observations of life under the sun. Uh, it has a, kind of the minor notes, except it's, it's a brilliant uh, thing that as Solomon pushes us through hopelessness, we find hope. It's been surprising for me to find so much hope in this book. We're at the end of chapter 3 uh, in our study, and so I want to read uh, from s- verse 16. Some say that the collection of Solomon's observations part 2 begins here at, at verse 16. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot." Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would open up our eyes to see what you want us to see and that you would move us to respond to how you want us to respond to your word. Help us to, to wade through this and understand uh, what you are saying to us Lord, so that we can, we can leave changed by the power of your word that's at work. In Jesus' name, amen. And then, so we do, indeed find some new content here. Solomon has been on this track of evaluating and, and making general observations about life under the sun. He's highlighted work and toil and even wisdom, and then pleasure, of course. And then last week he led us into contemplating time, uh, time and a season for every purpose under heaven, the, the reality that's, that things change, that seasons of life change over and over again, and, and everything in its time is going to come into play again this morning, but for the first time in Ecclesiastes, Solomon addresses evil and wickedness that are a part of our lives under the sun. He will address the presence of evil and wickedness several times in Ecclesiastes, but but that thread that runs through the book begins here. And this passage is actually pretty interesting because it's it's kind of hard to follow Solomon's train of thought and how one thing leads to the next. We don't certainly get all of the answers yet in, in just this one passage, but Solomon does continue to ask the right questions, though. And as I studied this passage, passage, instead of kind of a, a linear flow of thought, it's, it's like an equation presented itself to me. And I think that that equation uh, might help us uh, to put the pieces together. I saw that, that Solomon puts wickedness, and then he adds judgment, and then he adds death, and then what that equals is another surprising invitation. This is the equation that I, I think presents itself to us in our passage and we'll let these guide us so you start with wickedness and this is from verse 16 moreover I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness in other words what Solomon is observing is that wickedness shows up in surprising places wickedness and evil exist in unlikely places, in places where they're not supposed to be. In the halls of justice, he says, I saw corruption. And even in the place of righteousness, like in the temple, in the place where the worship of God is meant to happen, in a holy place, even in that place, I saw wickedness. And I don't know if there is anything in life that touches on deeper nerves or fires stronger emotions than this reality. The wickedness and evil that is just so unfair. If you think about abuse perpetrated by the powerful on those who never deserved You think about injustice and wickedness and evil that you just can't seem to do anything about. There is such a deep grief, a time to mourn, knows everyone who has experienced this. Maybe something has happened to you. And not just a a deep grief, but then there's this also like deep Anger that arises, even in the most mild manner when it comes to the pure, maddening injustice of evil and wicked at places where it's not supposed to exist. How sad and infuriating it is that corruption exists in the legal system, a department of justice that simply will not enforce laws or selectively does so from whatever side or a judge who takes a bribe that sets a bad actor free or ruins an innocent person's life. And this isn't, of course, in all justice systems and everywhere, of course, but the fact that there's been significant, seemingly unscalable injustices that people have faced, such that they're forced to just give up in a kind of painful raging bitterness I know that this is probably silly and a bit trite because I'm kind of mild-mannered but in a, in a small way I was just thinking the other day why does it make me so angry that the NBA just won't enforce traveling <laughs> you know what I'm talking about like I'm not I'm not like an anger person But it drives me crazy. Giannis takes five steps, man. And LeBron, like, and and there's refs right there, right? I mean, it's such a small thing. And yet, if that kind of anger arises in my soul at something so little, imagine something that has deeply affected Your life, wickedness, is not supposed to be in the places that practice righteousness, right weights and balances, right hearing of all parties, right judgments, impartiality, fairness, enforcing the rules. And then, even worse, wickedness and evil exist where the worship of God takes place. It's utterly heartbreaking to hear again and again the reports of sexual scandals in the church or financial scandals, how painful to listen to a podcast about a kind of authoritarianism that has damaged so many people's lives, and soured the reputation of Christ, how how utterly sickening it is to hear reports of sexual abuse and cover-up involving pastors and church leaders, wickedness, evil. How sad that because of sin, what is supposed to be a safe place isn't always. And again, there's this spectrum between deep sorrow and grief to heated anger. And it doesn't seem to have much middle ground. Just ping back and forth between both of them. So this is what Solomon has seen. In his travels. And it's interesting how Solomon immediately reflects on and produces an answer. He answers this bad news actually with good news. Look at verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work you look at our equation again do you see how Solomon just added judgment right so we we see wickedness we see injustice but then he adds judgment to the equation and judgment actually becomes the only balm for our souls that's able to give comfort and hope the news is the good news of judgment in the hands of God someday And you might ask, well, how in the world is judgment in God's hands good news? And it's because judgment in God's hands means that nobody will ever ultimately get away with any evil they have done. One day, every wrong will be made right and perfectly addressed by God Almighty. And it's right here that this is the only good news To every person who has suffered wickedness from another. Who has either never paid the price fully or has completely or seemingly gotten away with it. How do you reconcile what's been done to you? Where do you find peace for your soul? Well, Solomon leads us right to it the reality that that god is the judge and that god will bring judgment to the righteous and the wicked for everything done god is righteous and he loves righteousness rightness if what happened to you was so utterly wrong there's a god who loves right and will make everything right do you know that God hates sin and evil and wickedness did you know that we don't hate anything we don't hate anything like God hates wickedness and evil and there's a part of that that's actually good news And it's true, Proverbs 6, verse 16 says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. God hates that. Feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord, among brothers. In Psalm 5, it says, The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's coming. God is a God of righteousness. There's a judgment coming. And Ecclesiastes 3.17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. Again, maybe this is is difficult this morning. Maybe this hits home. Maybe you've experienced injustice. Maybe you have experienced abuse or betrayal. Maybe something so unfair or maddening has happened to you and it came out of nowhere. Maybe you're not white and you've been profiled or experienced racism in your life or recently. Or maybe at work there's something so unfair or wicked that's just out of your control and out of your hands. You can't do anything about it. Or something at home. Listen, God will surely judge the righteous and the wicked, but in his time. You remember that he makes everything beautiful in in its time, in his time, not ours. So whether in this life, through courts or judicial processes, or through reconciliation, or if it waits to the judgment day, God will judge and righteously punish every evil and every wicked that's ever been done to you. You can take heart. You can take heart. As Solomon did. And then he makes a transition and he he inserts death into our equation. And it's interesting because how he gets to this next part, that's what I meant where it's kind of hard to to follow except maybe he was thinking about judgment and the end of things and so that made him start to think about death and and how God is testing us, how that works. Uh, Don't get all the answers but but let's look at what he says. He says in verse 18 I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Interesting, huh? How it strikes New Testament ears on this side of death and resurrection. So we have to ask, in what sense are we like beasts? Or in what sense do we have no advantage over the beast? And I think it's at the purely physical level. I think he's thinking about life under the sun again, right? With, without reference to God, Life lived for self in a physical world with no reference to God. And if you think about it, it's, it's true. We all are part of the animal kingdom. Now, certainly we are made in the image of God unlike animals, but we are all made of flesh and bones, skeleton, muscles, and skin, and we have breath until we don't anymore. And we die, and we all Animals and humans turned back to dust eventually. From dust to dust, we all go because of the fall, because of sin, because of the curse. Now, it's important to realize that Solomon is not denying that mankind is created above the animals. He's not saying that. He's also not denying that there's life after death. He just mentioned judgment. And we know that he said last week that he has put eternity into the heart's of man, so that's not really what he's talking about. Solomon is making a, a purely physical and material observation, if you think about it, a scientific observation, you might say, about what is empirically or observably true at its most irreducible regarding men and women and beasts, which is certainly death. And you can't deny that. Man and animals live and then die. Now, we know that there is life after death, but here's, this, here's the point. But you can't scientifically prove that, can you? Nobody has seen a spirit go up or go down in either man or beast. And I'll tell you, that I've, I've experienced this phenomenon in the sense that, that, and maybe you have too, in the sense that I was in, in the room when my... Grandpa Hughes passed away when he uh, was struggling and then finally he breathed his last. We were all in the room and and watched him die. And then also one of the the hardest days for our family was the day that we had to put our our sweet dog Annie down at the end of her life and it was more of a mercy to her uh, to, to, to put her down and so the the, the person came to our house and and we literally watched her breathe her last breath. And so you, you think from Solomon's perspective, like what then is the difference between the two? In the sense that, like, you, d- you can't see what, what the spirit does. All you're looking at is breathing and then not anymore. You can't tell if the spirit goes up or down or sideways in either of them. This is what... I think he's talking about. And then, after the breathing stops, there's a burial, which is kind of the slow route, or maybe a cremation, which is the faster route, but it's a return to dust and ashes for both human and for animal, which I think is what then raises the Ecclesiastes question for Solomon, then what's the point? Right? If we're back at that spot... Where what advantage is there if not only do we all live and die, just like, just like the, the dogs, and are buried and, and eventually end up dust anyway, then what is the point? What is the purpose for you and me in this life under the sun? So it's really interesting to me that when when Solomon says this about death, he makes this observation that we all die. And then he says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. It It says, so, who knows? Spirit, man, beast, so. And what's really interesting to me is that I would have expected the next thing to come to be really gloomy. Right? It feels like we're back in that that Ecclesiastes spot with this observation about death and how at one level we're, we're no different than the possum that crossed the road and got hit on Centerville Turnpike 50 years from now, right? Just a pile of bones, both of us. I would have expected Solomon to say something like, so I hated life, right? He said that before. So something really, really frustrating, and, and it's interesting that that's not what happens. I, and I, I think it would, because it seems like this is what he's thinking, that I am the wisest king on the face of the earth, the most successful and wealthy king on the planet right now, and my destiny ultimately is no different from the rat that's swimming in the sewer towards my trash. Again, like pile of bones. It seems like the next thing we're going get, to gonna get is depressing, but, but it's not we get this surprising invitation. This this observation about wickedness and evil in our world that, that combines then with judgment, that then you add to that this reality of death, and then you put the equal sign there, and then all of a sudden we get this surprising invitation again. And it's not surprising because we haven't heard his conclusion before, but it's surprising because of all that he has just observed and communicated to us. In other words, Solomon is urging us to think about and then combat the reality of injustice and wickedness in the wrong places, plus the reality and surety of judgment to come, plus the reality of death, with... Accepting an invitation from him. And it's an invitation, once again, to find joy. In the midst of this, to find joy. To find joy through contentment in all that God has given us to do right now. Right in front of us. Today. Look at it in verse 22. You see that? So, please don't disconnect this. From the depths that he has just been exploring and the problem of evil that exists and the depths of damage and devastation that that does to real human beings. And yet this uptick that there's gonna be judgment, but even that creates this whole world in your mind about standing before God one day, which is inevitable because we all certainly do die. In this blackish, grayish, gloomy picture, He says, so. And what does he say following? I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? There's nothing better, he says, than a man or woman should rejoice in his or her work. And again, when you think about work, Think about everything in your life. Think about all that your life is about. Think about all of the busyness that God has given to us in our lives, not just our day job. Think about all of your life, all of your activities, from sunup to sundown, raising kids, projects, fixing, building, relationships, routines. All of this is the toil Of our lives, not just our our day job, but it's not less than our day job. So, certainly add into that your day job. We do want to think about that, whether you are preparing for full time work, or you are in training, or a student, or you are working a full time job, or you're a hardworking mom, maybe you are currently underemployed or piecing jobs together. Solomon says, in the face of this gloom, There is nothing better for you or for me than to rejoice in our work. To find joy in everything that's right in front of you and everything that that God has given your hands to do. I'm doing it right now, right? This is a work that God has given my hands to do. You're doing it right now. God has given you a work to do to listen to his word and respond to it led by his spirit. Like we're doing this right now. And God says, with all that exists, think about it outside of this room and in the world in which we live and all that spins and churns in the gloomy and negative and destructive places in our lives. Solomon says, there's nothing better than that you and me rejoice in our work to find joy. Why? Because what we are giving our lives to today and right now is all we have. Is John Foreman right? Yesterday is a wrinkle on your forehead. Yesterday is a promise that you've broken. Don't close your eyes. Don't close your eyes. This is your life. And today is all you've got now. And today is all you'll ever have. Is he right? Well, what else do you and I have except that the life, the life that God has given us today? And what else do you and I have except, except exactly what God has placed before us? Look, do you see how we're learning from the book of Ecclesiastes? All about life from Monday to Friday, aren't we? Monday to Friday life and beyond, we learn from Solomon to lean into our, our identity as image bearers of God and work. It's what we were created to do. God is a working God and he made us to image him in the work that he gives us to do. Work that makes things better in this world or fixed or more ordered instead of chaotic or more beautiful or more reflective of him and his glory and his kingdom. That's what we, we do every day. Whether you work for yourself or you're a part of the tens of thousands that work for the U.S. military or in a small business or a large corporation or not being paid by anybody out there at all. Every day we wake up to do things that God has called our hands to do. To walk in good works that he has planned in advance for us to walk in. This is our lot, Solomon is saying. And it's interesting, when, he, when he, he uses the word lot, it made me think of Psalm 16. This is what David says about God and our lot. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I wonder, can you say that about your life? There's a a profound God centeredness here that says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, that you hold my lot. Which is one thing to acknowledge the sovereignty and providence of God, but then to bow your knee to the reality that, and the lines that you have given to me, they're in pleasant places. Why? Because you've given them to me, and you're my heavenly Father, and you know all things. When I I think about the word lot, I think about the invitation to contentment, right? This idea of contentment, because it is the logical and theological response to understanding and embracing that God himself has drawn the boundary lines for you. And for me, and what is contentment exactly? Well, my favorite is Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote about contentment. This is what he says: his definition. It's that Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That blows my mind to think that that that's possible. Could you even imagine a kind of contentment in your soul and in your life, That, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Doesn't this mean if if you keep it up there, look at the words and think about the opposite? Wouldn't discontentment mean that, that sour, outward, agitated, exacting spirit which discards and chafes at God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I wonder which one of those lists describes your inner life. Your inner thoughts, your inner experience. Again, not disconnected from everything that's happening around us every day, including the reality of wickedness and sin in in the wrong places. Solomon says, there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. Given to us by God Almighty, who is our heavenly Father. Even when you have work to do that you don't want to do. You know, right, that that Jesus had work to do that he didn't want to do. If I could say it that way. Didn't prefer. I know that there is a mystery in the fully God, fully human Savior Jesus who never wavered in his resolve and yet he said to his father in the garden that night, will you remove this cup from me? Jesus was looking at his work on the cross that would accomplish the salvation of the world, which he had set his face like flint toward. And yet he said, is there any other way? can Can I not do that work? Yet not my will, but yours be done. So when Peter says in 1 Peter 4, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, this is exactly what Jesus did. Was he horrified by the unjust wickedness about to be done to him perpetrated on him. In the temple precincts was he horrified by the prospect of what was about to be done to him while perfectly content in God's will to take our judgment upon himself so that our day of judgment will not be a day of horror for the wickedness we've done and our sins but will be the beginning of eternal and perfect joy. I wonder if you you see, if we we put all this together, do you see this surprising invitation once again? This invitation to square up to and to honestly look into the face and reality of bad things in our lives. This isn't that kind of Christian escapism. Just put your head in the sand. Solomon would not stand for that. He squares up to the reality of wickedness in wrong places, that, that does the most damage to the human soul, and the reality of a judgment to come, and the reality of our, our deaths that will, that will then transition us to that place where we'll stand before God. He's inviting us to square up to the brokenness that we see in life. Only then to find comfort in the invitation to trust in God's final and perfect judgment of all things. Once there is death, and until then, what do you got? What do I got? What does anybody have? Except to... To rejoice in the work, the things that God has put right in front of you today. Because this is your lot. It's, it's as if the Lord wants to set us free through his word. To set us free to be content. To set us free to find happy. In each day, to set us free to find the good life by enjoying the good gifts that he gives us today and every day, including our work. Look, this good life, it does not include a take this job and shove it attitude. It's not not in here. Or I'll do the bare minimum for as long as possible until I can get out of here and retire or go to the next thing. That's that's not in here. This, This freedom to be content and quiet inside your heart and mind comes through finding joy in what God has put right in front of your hands today. Isn't it true that we live in such a frantic and neurotic and restless and anxious world anymore. You know this, right? Like the scientists are trying to wrap their minds around this, the amount of depression and and anxiety that exists at the earliest of ages, all the way to the end of life. We live in an absolutely frantic world. And I wonder if you would say, and, and you're This this describes you as well. Maybe you would not use words about your life like simple or peaceful or content or relaxed or tranquil, trusting. Maybe you would admit that you most of the time are going 100 miles an hour in several different directions all day long. That your heart is, is constantly churning and your mind is constantly churning. That there is a noisiness in your soul, a disquiet and a profound restlessness inside of you. And maybe that's because you're frustrated by what frustrated Solomon with evil where it's not supposed to be. Maybe the under the sun political world that we live in is driving you crazy from whatever perspective you come. And you just can't turn it off in your heart or in your mind. Maybe it's the justice system. So frustrating. Or education systems. Maybe it's the state of the church. Or maybe it's whatever's on the news that day. Or whatever podcast that you listen to. Or whatever dominates the conversations around the water cooler. Have you ever noticed how all of that, all of the above, makes our hearts so noisy? So busy, so restless, and maybe just like constantly angry at this low level. Maybe that's you. Maybe you live most of your life just kind of ticked off, if you're honest, because of all that we see. Do you see the invitation from God today through His Word to be set free from that? Not to put your head in the sand. Not to pretend like it doesn't exist, but to find joy through contentment in all that God gives your hands to do right now, today. And by the way, this doesn't mean that we don't think about life. We all think ahead. We all, we we are thinkers. So we do analyze the things around us. It doesn't mean that we don't care. It doesn't mean that we aren't daily healing from bad things that have been done to us. It doesn't mean that we don't advocate and, and work for change. It doesn't mean that we ignore. Again, Solomon encourages us to square up to the realities of the world around us and to find joy through contentment with what is right in front of you right now. And then the rest of today. Dad's Happy Father's Day. Got lunch coming, right? Or whatever. Whatever. We're going to the beach. It's a good gift from God. I'm not going to solve any political issues whatsoever or cultural issues whatsoever as I sit on Sandbridge Beach this afternoon. And isn't that good news? And it doesn't mean that I don't care about them. It doesn't mean that they're not important. But there's an invitation to be set free this morning from the noisiness and busyness of our hearts by inserting God into the middle of our every moment experience. So, how can we respond to this? Well, I wonder, are you are you okay with another restless week coming up? Or are you interested in a joy-filled week? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that there is, there is hope for your life. There is hope for peace in your soul. We love you and we hope that you will enter into the love of God through Jesus Christ this morning. The one that we've sung about. The one who died on the cross for our sins. That we would have eternal life that begins now. Transform lives that have the the possibility of this kind of experience. Peace that comes from the Prince of Peace is available. if If you give your life to Christ today if you are a follower of Jesus, let me just give you two things to think about this week. One is, one is a, a question, and then one is a prayer. If you, if you want to, to, to try to apply this to your life this week, then maybe just get some version of this in your head to ask yourself in any moment that happens until we see each other again next Sunday, Lord willing. Ask yourself, what has God put in front of me right now to do? What's right in front of you? The hands that he's given you to do, to enjoy his good gifts, to work, to celebrate, to mourn, to grieve. What has God put right now in front of your your life or your hands to do? Ask yourself some version of that question. If you find noise turning up in your heart. Or maybe you can just pray that God would help you. A prayer that says something like, God, with all that is going on around me, will you help me to find joy through contentment in all that you give my hands to do today? Help me to know that you are with me, that you will lead me, that you love me, that you will lead me into good works for your glory and the good of others. Help me to remember that my boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. And to trust in you. Look, could you imagine if that was our experience? This kind of sweet contentment that's available to us in the midst of the raging storms around us. That's the heart of God for us this morning. Do You know that? So let's pray. Worship team, you can come up. Lord, we do pray that prayer. Lord, we... We desire for a, a settledness in our anxious hearts. Lord, you have put eternity into our hearts so we we know time past and time coming. And that, because of, of our brokenness, inserts this possibility that we all have to, to overthink things, to project worst-case scenarios into our future, to worry about our. Relationships and our families and our neighborhoods and our country and our world and all that's going on, and often to hope for the worst, or even for those who have have walked through difficulty this week and are trying to to put it together, trying to figure out what next steps are, and we know that that's part of life, but we can see that you're offering us something that could still our hearts when we consider you and lift our eyes to you Jesus who never leaves us and never forsakes us so help us to be those who who can turn down the noise and I pray that that would be our experience this week in a, in a miraculous way something that we would say I think this is supernatural your answering prayer to turn down noise and instead to be present, eyes wide open to what's right in front of us in that moment, to enjoy the good gifts that you've given us and surrounded us with the blessing, the blessings all around us. So Lord, lead us through that. You, we rejoice to know are the good shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. So shepherd us through all these things, we pray. Help us to grow in wisdom in loving you and loving others and bringing glory to your name.